outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits that you can use, um, and those are online as well. There are audio recordings online, and uh, you can access those too. Appreciate your continued prayers for the um, internet ministry. Uh, I get emails from people. I had one from somebody in Perth, Australia this week, and somebody else up in uh, Idaho, and someone else. And they, they come in from all around. So it's great to see the Lord using that extra means of outreach. <clears throat> We're in uh, John eight twenty one to 29. Jesus is dialoguing again with the uh, Pharisees after the Feast of the Tabernacles. Then he again, or he said to them, again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. <clears throat> so the Jews were saying, Surely he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. They didn't realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Thomas Fuller said, You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon It will be too late. As long as you're alive and mentally competent, you have the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. But the second you die, it's too late. It's appointed unto us to die, and then comes judgment. And if you haven't repented, you'll be lost forever. Now, If you're thinking, well, that's just your opinion, I'm sorry, it's not my opinion. In fact, I wouldn't have come up with that probably on my own, but it's the truth that Jesus tells us as a loving Savior over and over and over again to warn us to believe in him while there's time. You'll notice that three times in our text, once in verse 21 and then twice In verse 24, he tells these Pharisees, you will die in your sins. Those are chilling words. What it means is you're going to die 
and face God's eternal judgment for your sins. But his final warning there in verse 24 where he says that, you'll notice that he gives a word of invitation and hope at the end of that verse because he says, For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now he is not in the original. I'll explain more in a moment. It was added by the translators. But uh, the invitation I think he is giving is, If you will believe that I am the Lord God, the the one I claim to be, then you will not die in your sins. And so at the heart of saving faith is understanding and believing who Jesus is as he is revealed in the Bible. And we need to be very clear on that so that we don't die and face God's eternal judgment. And so our text is telling us to go to heaven Uh, Believe the truth about yourself, we'll see what that is, and also believe the truth about Jesus while there is still time to do so. As I say, the context is Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees after the Feast of Tabernacles, either at the end of that feast or shortly after. And as I explained, during that feast, they had two ceremonies. These are not in Scripture, but They had become traditions among the Jews. In the one ceremony, they would go to the pool of Siloam and draw water and in procession go back and pour it out at the altar. And it was a reminder of the fact that the Lord had sustained Israel in the wilderness by providing water from the rock. And it was in that context that Jesus stood up and said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow these rivers of living water. The second ceremony was a lighting ceremony where they would light these huge torches or candelabras in the temple uh, precincts. And again, it was to commemorate the fact that the Lord God had been a pillar of uh, a cloud and of fire to the children of Israel in the wilderness that he had been a light unto them, and his presence was symbolized by the light. And it was in that context, as we saw last time, that Jesus proclaimed that he was the light of the world, that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, as I mentioned last time, these are just astounding claims. They may be so old hat to us that we kind of read them, go ho-hum, and move on. But Those are the kind of claims that just reach out and grab you by the lapels and say, what are you going to do about it? You've got to respond to these claims because you can't just blow them off. Either Jesus was a madman, crazy, to make those claims, or he is who he claimed to be, and we have to respond by believing in him and following him. Now, unfortunately, the uh, Pharisees responded with hostility. Uh, They did not respond with faith in Jesus. In verse 13, after his light of the world claim, in verse 12, uh, they said that his testimony is not valid, and they challenged him. In verse 19, they challenged him again and say, well, where is your father? And that was probably a slur on Jesus' mother because there were rumors that she had conceived Jesus out of wedlock, which, of course, she did through the Holy Spirit. 
but it was a put down again of Jesus. And in our text, they'll continue to throw out these uh, challenges to Jesus to tear him down. They are not seeking him to believe in him. They're trying to find some way to disprove him, to prove him to be a phony. And uh, it just reflects their hardened hearts. But as I studied this, I realized, you know, it's easy to sit here and throw stones at the Pharisees. And we all go, yeah, get those guys, get those guys. And as I said, the word of God tends to be more like a boomerang. You throw it at someone else and it comes back and conks you between the eyes. And so rather than uh, try to take the speck out of the Pharisees' eyes, I think we need to examine the text, first of all, by saying, is there a log in my eye I need to check and take out before I look at the Pharisees' eyes? And so the first point we need to consider is simply that to go to heaven, recognize your true condition before God, as a sinner. In verse 19, the one we we studied last week, Jesus pointed out the root problem with the Pharisees. He said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And that is the root problem with the entire human race. We are all born as sinners, alienated from God. And so we sin We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners by nature. And uh, we don't know him. We don't know God. We don't know Jesus by birth, by our natural birth, whom God sent to bear our sin on the cross. And at the root of the problem in not knowing God is we don't know the absolute holiness of God. We don't have any concept of it. Even God's people don't. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord? He didn't say, cool, you know, this is great. He fell down and just went, oh, man, I'm in a world of trouble. And the same thing even with the Apostle John, who put his head on Jesus' chest there at the Last Supper. In Revelation 1, he gets a vision of Jesus in his glory. And he says, I fell down at his feet as a dead man. That's the response to the holiness of God. And since we don't see how absolutely holy God is, that he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, that our God is a consuming fire, as it says in Scripture, we don't see that. And so we don't see how utterly sinful in his presence we are. And so we narrow the gap. And we figure, well, you know, we can bridge the gap with a few good deeds. Just clean up your life, brush it up a little, and no problem. And it's the problem of self-righteousness. And that's what the problem of the Pharisees were. And so rather than comparing ourselves with the holy God and recognizing, oh man, I am undone, we tend to compare ourselves with the worst of sinners on earth. And we say, well, I'm I'm not blowing up women and children like those evil guys over in the Middle East are doing. And, you know, I'm not uh, preying on little kids like child molesters do. And So I'm a fairly decent person. I mean, after all, I'm not like those people are. But you see, we're using the wrong measuring stick. We're not measuring against the holy God. We're just measuring against fellow sinners. And and so Jesus draws a line here between these self-righteous Pharisees. And I believe that all of us as religious people, in fact, you're in church means you're somewhat religious, 
we all have this propensity towards self-righteousness. Jesus draws a line between them and himself in verse 21 when he says, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He's going back, of course, to the Father in heaven. And he's saying that not only would they not go there, he's saying you cannot go there because of your sin. They are in their proud self-righteousness and you cannot come to heaven, Jesus is saying, in that condition. Now, they mistake his words. And in verse 22, and I think verse 22 is a put-down, they say, surely he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, to understand that put-down, you have to understand that for the Jews, suicide was the worst of the worst of sins. A suicidal person, there was a special place in hell reserved for them. And so what they're probably saying here is, well, you know, if he kills himself and goes to hell, at least he'll be out of our hair. We won't have to listen to him because we're all going to heaven. And so it's kind of a sarcastic put down of Jesus saying, that's the kind of person he is, the kind of person who'd kill himself. And of course, we're not like that. But uh, they're sadly mistaken. Jesus is saying, I'm going back to my Father in heaven, and you guys aren't going to be there. And of course, they assumed they'd be there because they were Jews. And so Jesus continues in verse 23 to draw the line even more. He says, you're from below, and I'm from above. You are from this world, and I am not of this world. And he's saying that there is this humanly unbridgeable chasm between the holy God in heaven and all of us born in sin on this earth. And people try, as I say, to narrow that chasm and then to build a little bridge across it. But that's always futile. It's like the people in Babel trying to build a tower to reach into heaven. Ridiculous. You know, you won't even get off off the planet, of course. And the Bible says all our good deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight, so you can't build the bridge with your good deeds. It's going to fall short. And all the good deeds in the world are not going to pay for your sins, and it can't even pay for one sin, and we all have thousands upon thousands of sins. And so we have to realize our condition as rebellious sinners, otherwise we will never turn from our self-righteousness, and that's the problem Jesus is addressing here. These men prided themselves in their religion, in their religious observance, and they were pretty good at it. And Jesus is saying, your problem is you're of a whole different realm. You're of the world. I am not. And there's this chasm that has to be bridged. And furthermore... That chasm has rendered all of us as sinners by nature spiritually blind unless the Lord opens our eyes to see. I think that's behind John's comment in verse 27. He says, They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Now, that's a hard comment to understand because Jesus is very plainly speaking about the Father. He had spoken to them about the Father back in chapter 5. Remember? They said, you're making yourself out to be God God because you're saying that God is your father. And then Jesus went on for some 30 verses there 
saying, exactly, let me explain to you who my father is and so on. So it was perfectly plain, and yet they didn't see. And the only way I can explain verse 27 is uh, Paul's comment in 2 Corinthians 4.4, where he says, The God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. So Jesus is going to go on to explain to the disciples in John 16, 8, that the Holy Spirit has to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the word convict that he uses there is the word used for an attorney in court who proves his case, who convinces the jury that his case is right. And the idea is the Holy Spirit has to convince a sinner that he's a sinner or he won't see his need for a savior. And so we, we have to realize, first and foremost, I can't save myself. All my self-righteousness, all my good deeds, everything I try is going to fall short. I need a savior. And of course, that's why Jesus came. And so the very bottom line, the starting place, if you want to go to heaven, is to recognize your true condition before God. All have sinned. All deserve his judgment, and you cannot do anything to save yourself. We start there, and then we'll look to the Savior. And that's the second thing to see, to go to heaven, believe in Jesus as he is revealed then in Scripture. I've often said to you, the crucial question, the crucial question in all of life is the one that Jesus asked the disciples in uh, Matthew 16, 15, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Your eternal destiny hinges on having and believing the right answer to that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, there's maybe at the first glance hope in in verse 25 here because they ask that question. Who are you? And you go, yay, they're finally on the right page. They're going to ask the right question. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Most commentators that I read uh, explained they they are not asking that question sincerely. Uh, The Greek text indicates that it was a challenge to Jesus that could be translated, who do you think you are to tell us that we are going to die in our sins? So it's not a a sincere seeking question saying, Lord, I really want to know you. Who are you? No, it's not that. It's like, huh, some guy you are to tell me, a a Pharisee, that I'm going to die in my sins. How dare you? It's that kind of a challenge to Jesus. Um, But Jesus replies in verse 25, and this is a difficult phrase in Greek to translate, and I won't go into the details of that. Uh, The sense is probably of verse 25, either as the ESV has it as a statement, or the New American Standard asks it as a rhetorical question. The ESV has just what I have been telling you from the beginning, or the NASB has what have I been saying to you from the beginning. In other words, it's obvious, you know, I've been telling you from the beginning 
But Jesus is saying, your problem is not that you have not heard what I've been saying. Your problem is you've heard it and you have not believed it. You've challenged it. And our text reveals four important truths about Jesus that we must believe uh, if we want to go to heaven. First of all, believe in Jesus as the eternal God sent to the earth by the Father. In verse 14, Jesus said, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. And then in verse 23, he asserts his origin is from above, not from this world. And he repeatedly emphasizes, it's in verse 16, verse 18, verse 26, and verse 29, I came to this earth because the Father sent me. And then he says in verse 24, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then in verse 28, he repeats, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Now, as I said a moment ago, the translators added that word he to complete the sense of Jesus's I am statement there. He says in the Greek, ego I me, I am. Um, The legitimate sense of it may be this, I am who I claim to be. Or it may be, uh, I am the Messiah. But I think there's more to it because he's talking here to the Pharisees. And you have to remember the Pharisees knew the Old Testament better than any of us here today know the Old Testament. They had that thing down. They, They knew it mentally. And so when Jesus makes the comment, unless you believe that I am, I think instantly they would have connected it with these repeated I am statements in Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 40 to 55 has them, and I'll quote them in a moment. Um, And those statements, I believe, rested on God's revelation to Moses in that well-known passage in Exodus 3.14, where Moses says to God, who are you that's sending me to deliver Israel? And God gives the answer, I am who I am. I am is who God is. And his name Yahweh is taken from the Hebrew verb hayah, to be, the verb to be. And so Jesus, I think, is probably saying here, unless you believe that I am the Lord God, The I am revealed in the Old Testament, you will die in your sins. Now let's look at some of the verses in Isaiah. In Isaiah 41.4, God says, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. And in the Greek Septuagint, they translate that last phrase, ego, I, me. It's the same phrase used here of Jesus. I am. I am. And then in Isaiah 43.10, the Lord says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. There's the phrase. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. You know, it's more than ironic that the Jehovah's Witnesses use Isaiah 43.10 for their own name of their cult. Um, You are my witnesses. That's where they get it from. 
And isn't it ironic that that is a verse that Jesus is using in part to proclaim his own deity, and yet they deny the deity of Jesus. So, sad fact. But then in Isaiah 43, 13, the Lord adds this. Even from eternity, I am he. There's the phrase again. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Or in Isaiah 48, 12, the Lord says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. There it is again. I am the first, and I am also the last. And again, I don't see how you can deny the deity of Jesus, because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, and Revelation 2, 8, Jesus says, I am the first, and I am the last. He's going back to Isaiah 43, uh, 48, 12, where the Lord says, I am the first and I am the last. Jesus says the same. So when he tells these Pharisees, and they knew Isaiah well, I am, I am he. And he uses the exact same phrase the Lord uses repeatedly in Isaiah. I believe that Jesus is claiming to be eternal God. And yet, at the same time, and he does this often in John, he does it here in our text, he distinguishes himself from the Father. And so he is clearly teaching the Trinity, that there is the Father, he is God the Son, and of course he will, in chapter 14 and 15 and 16, talk about sending God the Holy Spirit. But he makes it clear here that the Father sent him to earth to be our Savior. And so to believe in a Jesus who is not God, a human Jesus, who is not God, uh, is not going to get you to heaven. I I haven't been able to track down the source of this quote, but I love this quote from Bishop Mool, um, Anglican bishop back around the turn of of the 20th century. He said, A Savior not quite God is a bridge broken at the farther end. You know, you're going to go across the bridge. Whoops, the bridge doesn't quite reach. To be the Savior, he had to be God in human flesh. And only Jesus could be that. The second thing to believe about Jesus is that he lived a sinless life in total dependence on the Father. Notice verse 29. This is another astounding claim of Jesus. No one else who has ever lived can legitimately make this claim that Jesus makes. He says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's claiming perfection. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Same vein down in verse 46. He asked these critics, which of you convicts me of sin? They can't. They have nothing against him. He is sinless. And he always lived as a man in total dependence on the Father, always obedient to the Father's will. And he had to do that because if he had sinned, then when he died, his death would have not been applicable to the sins of others. He would have had to die for his own sin. But he died for our sin. He was the Lamb of God. And you remember when the the Jews would sacrifice a lamb, it had to be 
uh, a firstborn male without blemish, and that is who uh, Jesus was without spot or blemish. A third thing you have to believe about Jesus is that he was lifted up on the cross to die as the substitute for your sins. He died as the substitute. In verse 21, Jesus again tells the Jews, he said it back in chapter 7, that he's going away and they won't be able to come where he's going. And he's referring to his upcoming death, his death on the cross when he would lay down his life for his sheep. And then in verse 28, Jesus says this, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And lifting Him up refers to His coming death. We saw that back in John 3 when He told Nicodemus the Son of Man would be lifted up. We'll see it again in John 12. It refers to his being lifted up on the cross. But John intends some irony here because that verb, lifted up, is almost always used to refer to exalting someone. And there is an irony there, isn't there? The most humiliating and degrading thing that could happen to a person in first century Israel was to be put on a cross. I mean, they stripped you almost naked. They beat you. They mocked you, and then they nailed you to that cross when everybody would jeer at you. It was the most degrading, humiliating thing possible. And yet for Jesus, it was his glory. It manifested his glory like nothing else did. The night before he was crucified, Jesus in John 17, 1 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. The cross glorifies God because it reveals His holiness and His justice. God could not just brush away sin. It had to be paid for even if it was His own Son put on the cross. But the cross also magnifies the love and mercy of God like nothing else because it is through the cross that He could take Jesus' righteousness and put it on the guilty sinner, and the guilty sinner sin, and put it on Jesus, and justify all who believe in Jesus. And so it displays the glory of God. Now, Satan hates the cross. It's his doom. He hates the cross more than anything else, and he's always trying either to distort the meaning of the cross or to just eradicate it from any teaching about how a person gets to heaven. But you can, you can judge all teaching by this. If it denies or in any way diminishes the work of Christ on the cross, that teaching is heretical to its core. That is a fundamental uh, thing by which to measure teaching. What does it do with Christ on the cross? Now, there are a lot of people who say, well, it's an example of love. Jesus died as an example of love. And you know what? That's true, but it's totally inadequate if that's as far as they go. Of course, Jesus is the greatest display of love in the history of the universe. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But why did he give his only son? You know, he gave his only son as a substitute for sinners 
on the cross. And, and so if it stops with, well, he's a great example of love, it's heretical. Um, you know, you can try and imitate the love of Jesus all your life, and you'll die and go to hell unless you trust in the death of Jesus for your sins. It's got to be that substitutionary thing. Same thing with good works. You can devote your life to good works, but if your good works can get you into heaven, Jesus didn't have to die as a substitute. Your good works will cut it. Or a more common thing, people try and combine good works with Jesus' death. You know, Jesus' death did a lot, but we have to add our good works to it in order to kind of tip the scale and get into heaven. That diminishes what Christ did on the cross. And it, of course, it glorifies our works as if somehow there's merit in what we do. And, uh, you know, Paul wrote the letter of Galatians to refute that whole idea because the Judaizers, whom he wrote Galatians against, they said, well, we believe in Jesus. We believe Jesus died for our sins on the cross. We just believe you also have to keep the law of Moses, especially circumcision. And Paul said, if you believe that, you're damned. He blasted them for that. And so to go to heaven, we have to believe that Jesus is the eternal God sent to this earth by the Father, that he lived a sinless life in total dependence on the Father, and that when he died, when he was lifted up on the cross, he died as a substitute for our sins. But there's one other crucial thing. And that is you have to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And Jesus knew that he would soon die on the cross, but he also knew that wasn't the end. And so he talks here about, I'm going to be returning to the Father in heaven. Verse 21, he mentions it again, or they mention it in verse 22. And it anticipates, of course, both his bodily resurrection from the dead and his bodily ascension into heaven because that's how he returned to heaven. And believing in Jesus' bodily resurrection and his ascension is essential for salvation. Paul makes that point very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says there in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is also in vain. And then in verse 17, he adds, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And so Jesus had to die for our sins, but he also had to be raised for our justification, as Paul says in Romans 4. And he is in heaven bodily. He is coming back from there bodily soon. Now, God has given much evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's, of course, the empty tomb in Jerusalem. If Jesus had been there in the tomb, the Pharisees would have gone, produced his body, and Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost would have been a joke. Um, There are the many independent eyewitnesses to his resurrection, different settings, different circumstances, and so on. Uh, There are also the changed lives of the witnesses that's remarkable. They were all cowardly, not expecting a resurrection. After the resurrection of Christ, they were changed into bold witnesses, most of whom gave their lives for their testimony, which would not be rational if Jesus was not raised. So 
If you don't want to die in your sins, then our scripture is saying, uh, if you don't want to face God's judgment or uh, put it positively, if you want to go to heaven, first of all, you've got to recognize your need. I am a guilty sinner. I have done so many sins. I cannot in any way make up for them. I need a Savior. Secondly, you have to look to Jesus as that Savior as he is revealed in Scripture. But there's one other crucial matter here in our text. And that is to go to heaven, believe in Jesus, while there's still time. While there's still time. And I I titled my sermon, Terrible Words from a Loving Savior, because Jesus' words in verse 21 and in verse 28 are really kind of terrible and scary. He says, I go away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. And then in verse 28, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. You have to stop and say, wait a minute, what does that mean? They're going to seek him, but they're going to die in their sins. And they're going to know that who he is, but they're still going to die in their sins. What does that mean? I think the implication of those words is not that the religious leaders are going to come to know Jesus in a saving way after his death, but rather they're going to seek him too late. They're going to seek him too late. And the door of mercy is going to be slammed shut like the door of Noah's ark, and they realize it's too late. Should have got on board when we could have. He was the light of the world, and they rejected that testimony. And so while Jesus appeals to them to believe there in verse 24, Jesus is also warning them that they're going to seek him later, but they're going to die in their sins and face judgment, eternal punishment in hell. And so here's what I think Jesus means. I think he means they're going to seek him and they're going to know who he is at the judgment. But at the judgment, it's too late. And and I'm kind of basing that on Jesus' parable there, a story that he told of the rich man and Lazarus. I don't know if it's a parable or a true story. But you remember that the rich man in hell lifts up his eyes to Lazarus there in the bosom of Abraham and he pleads with Abraham for mercy. He says, send someone to relieve my suffering. And Abraham gives this chilling word to him. Luke 16, 26. He says, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that none who wish to come over from here to you uh, will be able and, and that none may cross over from there to us. And so the picture is there are those people in heaven. They realize what they've done. They want, I mean, people in hell realize what they've done. They want to go to heaven and they can't. There's this great chasm fixed. It's too late. It's too late. But you know, it's also possible to harden your heart against the light that you've received in this life to the point where you cross a line you can't go back across. It's a scary thought. 
You, you hear the gospel, you say, eh. You hear it again, no, nah, no, not interested. I'm having a good life, maybe later. And you hear it again, and you hear it again, and at some point you cross a line. The Bible says of Esau that he sought for repentance with tears, and he couldn't find it. It was too late. You say, well, where's that line? <laughs> To ask that question is like saying, I'm going to the Grand Canyon. How close to the edge can I get without falling over? You don't want to go there. You know, you stay back from the edge if you don't want to go over the edge, right? And so the time to repent is now is what Jesus is saying. Remember the story Jesus told in Matthew 25 of the ten virgins? And there's the bridegroom is coming. And the virgins had to keep their oil in their lamps going so that they would be ready when the bridegroom came. And he says that five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. And the wise ones, they had, they had enough oil on hand. The foolish ones didn't. And they said, oh, lend us some of yours. They said, we can't or we'll run out. So they run off to buy more oil at midnight and the bridegroom comes. And he takes the five wise virgins into the wedding feast, and the door is shut. And then the foolish virgins show up and bang on the door. Let us in, let us in. He says, sorry, sorry, you're too late. And here's how Jesus supplies that, Matthew 25, 13. He says, be on the alert then, for you don't know the day or the hour. And that could be the day or the hour of his coming. But you know, it can also be the day or the hour you're going to die. None of us know. Could be today. I might not be here next week. You may not be here next week. We don't know. And so the point is, be ready. One other thing, though. It's possible to seek Christ now for the wrong reason so that you seek Him in vain. There are people who want some blessing. Or maybe they're in a jam, they're in a bad situation, and help, get me out of here. And so they cry out to God, but they're not crying out as a sinner, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner, I need salvation. Jesus is the Savior who died for my sin. That's not the idea of it. It's like, God, I need Aladdin's genie. Would you please come to my aid and get me out of this mess? And then they maybe figure out how to get out of it on their own or or time passes and somehow their circumstances turn for the better. And so they put God back on the shelf and go on about their life in their old way. They have sought the Lord in vain. You see, to go to, go to heaven, not to die in your sins, as Jesus warns here, you've got to come to God as a sinner. Say, oh God, I know I deserve your wrath, but I understand that Jesus the eternal Son of God, came to this earth, took on human flesh, died as a substitute for my sins. God, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in him now. See, that's the point here. Don't delay. Now, I realize some people might think that what I'm doing this morning and talking about hell and judgment and all of that is not loving. But, you know... If, if you were going 90 miles an hour toward the edge of the Grand Canyon and I knew you were doing it and didn't jump out with a red flag and try and say, stop, slow down, there's a cliff, I wouldn't be very loving. If the words of Jesus here are true, 
that some will die in their sins and face God's judgment, the most loving thing I can do is say, turn to Christ now. Turn to him now. Flee from the wrath to come. A man named Francis Quarles wrote, He that has promised pardon on our repentance has not promised to preserve our lives until we repent. Or again, to quote Thomas Fuller, as I did at the start of the message, you cannot repent too soon because you don't know how soon it may be too late. Dear Father, I pray that you would work in hearts through your Holy Spirit, that you would, if any are here thinking their righteousness will get them into heaven, show them that it's not going to cut it. They need a Savior, that you would show them that Jesus is the only Savior, that you would show them that they must turn from their sin and trust in him and that they should do it immediately, not tomorrow. And Lord, I thank you for those of us you have saved, that you found us in our terrible condition. You had mercy on us. I pray that you would fill our hearts with compassion for the lost and with gratitude toward you for that great salvation that you have so freely given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.